0: The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Spiritual Life on member-supported Restoration Radio. is your host. Good evening, this is John Thompson and I'm joined by Father Bernard Utley, a traditional Benedictine
0: priest. Tonight we'll be discussing the subject of perfect contrition. Father? Hi John, thanks. Uh, First of all, I wanted to explain that I was recording talks on The Spiritual Life on True Restoration Radio, and I took a break. And the reason why I took a break for a while was that back in March of 2015, both my parents died that same month. My father died March 7th, and my mother died on March 25th. So that was obviously a very difficult time. And so for that reason, and other personal reasons, I decided to discontinue the radio show. And uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to come back at all. I needed time to think and gather myself. However, there was still many topics that I still wanted to present in a in in a forum that would reach more people than simply my own parish. And so I asked to start the show up again. Uh, but not every month. I'm only going to record a show every maybe three or four months because I always like to prepare carefully. For these radio shows. And I wanted months in between episodes to prepare and read and reread sources and craft a decent presentation. Although the presentations might be a little longer, but they're not monthly. So please have patience with the talk. If it's a little long, you know, maybe listen to it in, in, in two sessions or three sessions. My philosophy is that I, I want to give as much as possible on a certain topic and have it be somewhat complete so that everyone has a relatively complete picture of the subject, even though it's not exhaustive. These things we could speak probably 10 hours on, 15 hours. But some of these subjects and some of the the excerpts and quotes that I will will read to you, most of you will not be able to uh, acquire yourself or find. And, And frankly, you'll never hear it in other places. So the last show that we recorded for The Spiritual Life was the third part on prayer, which covered the topic of meditation. I had intended on following the show with uh, a two or three part series on the prayer of contemplation. However, I decided that it would be best to do a show on what I consider to be the greatest or most important of prayers, before I delved into the lengthy and deep topic of contemplation. In my opinion, uh, that most important prayer is none other than the act of perfect contrition, even more so than any other prayer or devotion. As radical as that may sound to some people, it's more fundamental. It really embodies the essential act of our religion. The reason why it is so important is because of the spiritual effects of this prayer, or rather this act of the soul it's not just a prayer that we recite it's an act of the soul of the will it's not simply another prayer formula but an act that does something or can do something immediately to the soul let me here state in the briefest of ways what perfect contrition is and what its effects are perfect contrition is sorrow for sin from the motive of love of god And the effect of this kind of contrition is immediate reconciliation of the sinner to God and recovery of sanctifying grace, even outside of the sacrament of penance, before the sacrament of penance is received. And also that an act of perfect contrition is not a very difficult or rare act to make, but it can be relatively easy and common with the help of God's ordinary grace for someone of goodwill. So that, in a nutshell, is what this whole show is about, really summed up in a few sentences. Even as a young religious in the monastery of Christ the King, years before I was ordained and ever since ordination especially, I've always thought that the act of perfect nutrition To be so important in the spiritual life, a golden key of the spiritual life. And yet I discovered that it is often misunderstood or downplayed or ignored or downright forgotten entirely, even by traditional Catholics, including priests. I'm going to speak here from my personal experience at the monastery of Christ the King, the Abbey of Christ the King, as an example. So let me tell you that perfect contrition was the subject of some heated arguments uh, and disagreements at the monastery between some of the monks, including myself, and the abbot. And I was probably the, the, the main one that disagreed with the abbot. The problem was, and I'm not trying to put down my abbot, it was just an example out of my, my own life. Uh, the problem was that my abbot was under the mistaken impression that an act of perfect contrition was difficult and rare and therefore, relatively little practical importance to emphasize or teach people about. And myself and, and a couple other monks particularly vigorously disagreed with that notion that it's difficult and rare. And we would present, you know, various books and quote after quote showing him that, in fact, that the truth is that an act of perfect nutrition is not extremely difficult. And if it is rare, it's because people are ignorant about its true nature. Not because it is intrinsically complex or difficult, but the abbot was a little stubborn on this and uh, wouldn't accept what all the evidence was saying. He he did eventually come around, but not because of anything I said. Years before he accepted our view on this, I I had found a, a wonderful little pamphlet on perfect contrition published in 1904, and it was called Perfect Contrition, a Golden Key of Heaven for All Good Christian People. And this was an amazing discovery, really a priceless little booklet, which I'll talk more about later, actually, I'll quote from. At the time... I had uh, designed the Abbey's website. And for the website, I had a feature called Daily Spiritual Notes, which I would have a paragraph or two on the spiritual life presented each day. So visitors could read past notes, but they couldn't go forward. And so this made people come back each day or every other day to do a little spiritual reading. And it really only took a few minutes each day. So I decided to copy the entire pamphlet into a a 15-part series for those daily spiritual notes. And before they were published on the internet, the abbot always proofread them, Pro- proofread everything I wrote on there. So this was my way of getting him to read things I wanted him to read. And so if I disagreed on a certain topic, I would try to find a way to put it in there and quote other authors on it. So that was kind of humorous to me. So he read the entire series. He seemed to like everything it was saying. He would always do that. He goes, This is great stuff. But for some reason, it never really changed his position, which was, I found ironic and just, it was, it was funny. So that was a little discouraging at the time uh, that it didn't convince him. But I did my best. And I'm sure that those notes helped those who read them online. Anyway, a couple years later, Bishop Robert McKenna, may you rest in peace, came across the same pamphlet, and loved it so much that he decided to reprint it, and he sent the abbot a bunch of copies. Well, this is what brought the abbot around eventually, of course, because the bishop said so, right? Not me or not the other monks. So I said to Father Abbott, I put that very same pamphlet in the spiritual notes, notes years ago, and I don't think he remembered they were in there, but it was, it was kind of funny. So eventually I understood why he was Mistaken about this subject. And that's because there was a history of controversy on the subject. And unfortunately, the truth became obscured for centuries because of the effects of different heresies like quietism and Jansenism. There were books floating around that said it was difficult to make, but other books saying it was not difficult. There seemed to be a contradiction among various authors. And just a few years ago, I found an amazing book published in 1916 by Father Henry Churchill Semple, S.J., a Jesuit. And the title of the book immediately struck me, Heaven Open to Souls, and the subtitle said, Love for God above all things and perfect contrition, easy and common in souls resolved to avoid mortal sin. So there it is. That's the whole book on the subject. 567 pages long. I definitely felt vindicated when I found this book. I wish I found it years earlier, but it was a great find, and I'll be quoting from this book later on in the show. Before I get into explaining the act of perfect contrition itself, I want to give another personal note. At the monastery again, uh, so many people would call us from all over the country asking for prayers and spiritual advice And the abbot was constantly on the phone talking to people, advising them and encouraging them. Many, many people who were elderly, sick and shut in, they expressed their concern and fear that they were not able to make it to Mass. Maybe there wasn't a Mass even in their state, a traditional Latin Mass. They weren't able to see a priest to receive the sacraments, especially to go to confession. And this worried Many of them. So some of them asked if they could go to confession over the telephone. The abbot brought the topic up to the community, and we discussed it. I said that I I didn't think we should do it at all; that it would be doubtfully valid at best or outright invalid. So we shouldn't do it. In moral theology textbooks, pre-Vatican II, of course, the question came up. Father Henry Davis, S.J., in his moral theology a four-volume moral theology set, taught that there has to be a mutual presence of priest and penitent. And this is what he said. Persons who speak to one another by telephone from a distance of more than 20 paces cannot be said to be mutually present, nor could absolution be given. If given, be given orally, that is by the human voice. The sound received is not the direct human voice, but a substituted sound, as is true also in broadcasting. It is therefore held that such absolution would be invalid. The sacred penitentiary being asked if, in case of necessity, absolution could be given by telephone, replied that no answer need be given, and that was in 1884. Nevertheless, in real necessity, conditional absolution might be thus given, for reverence to the sacrament is then safeguarded. So this has been a question for a long time, but the answer is negative or at most a conditional absolution. And what that means is that the penitent should if they are able to get to a priest in the future confess those sins again. But in the meantime, the conditional absolution might give them some peace of mind and I didn't like that. My opinion is that one shouldn't even give that conditional absolution over the telephone because it is so doubtful, because it it because a, a book like this says invalid, really. It's held to be invalid. So don't even give it conditionally, but rather give that person simple instruction regarding the act of perfect contrition. The abbot thought that most of these simple elderly people would find it too difficult to understand what perfect contrition is. I said, it's not difficult. Just ask them, are you sorry for your sins because God is all good and worthy of your love and that you offended him? It's practically that simple. So I think it's far better to teach them what an act of perfect contrition is and what the proper motive for their sorrow should be, namely the love of God, so that someone has the tools to recover sanctifying grace immediately. I believe this is far better than to give someone a feeling of security, a, a false security perhaps. If you were to leave them, if you were to give them or have their confession over the phone, giving them conditional absolution, they would never strive to make an act of perfect contrition then. They would say, well, I went to confession. And there may be a chance, again, according to the textbooks, that that confession was not valid. And so they would be still in their sins. The safest way, I think, is is follow what moral theology textbooks say, treat confession over the phone as doubtfully valid or invalid, absolutely, and teach the act of perfect contrition. I'm not sure what the abbot did personally, uh, pastorally, I don't know, but I think teach perfect contrition, and then trust in God. We have to believe in perfect contrition. It's really part of the Catholic faith, and we have to trust God. We have to learn how to trust God. So,
1: Father, this sounds like something perfect for our time, because there's so many people that can't get to a priest, and if they have some other way that is uh, known and relatively easy to do, and is, as you're going to explain, supported by the church and and definitely efficacious, then I think this is a perfect solution for our time.
0: Absolutely, that that is the uh, the practical problem in these days. Uh, uh, which the remnant faithful find themselves, there's not many valid traditional priests left in the world. That's, that's a fact. Traditional Catholics, many of them, they simply don't have the luxury of having a parish priest right down the block from their house, that they can go to confession to any day of the week. The many traditional Catholics have mass available only once a month, sometimes even less, sometimes traveling hundreds of miles to a nearby chapel. So the faithful are really in in spiritual danger today. God knows this, and he's already provided extraordinary channels of grace when the sacraments are not available. There is a way of recovering lost sanctifying grace when one is unable to receive the sacrament of penance, and that is the act of perfect contrition. And... Similarly, also theologians and spiritual writers speak of and recommend the practice of making frequent acts of spiritual communion when it's impossible to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. That's another topic for a future show. But you see the similarities between each thing. God is good. God is good. He's not a Pharisee in the sky. He's a father. And for him, divine charity... True love for him is really the fulfillment of the law. The sacraments are the ordinary means, uh, but for those who truly love God, he will love them in return. So I think today, most of all, traditional Catholics have to understand what the act of perfect contrition is and how to make it, and also spiritual communion. These two spiritual acts of the soul are vitally important, and now more than ever, Perfect contrition may mean the difference between salvation and damnation, heaven or hell, eternal torture and loss of God, or everlasting life and eternal happiness. I came across this quote from Cardinal Franzelin, who is generally considered the greatest theologian of the 19th century, heavily involved in Vatican Council, the first Vatican Council, the Vatican Council, and really the theologian to the popes. Uh, and he said this, could I preach throughout the whole world of nothing would I speak more frequently than a perfect contrition? So coming from a man of his stature, that is impressive, I think. And I think today we, as traditional Catholics, we have to be aware of false devotions that are floating around. There's so many different Magical prayers, basically, that uh, are floating around—guaranteed prayers. Pray this little formula, and you'll you'll get this result on, uh, guaranteed. You'll release this many souls from purgatory. You'll instantly be saved. You'll whatever. There's so many different promises out there, and this act of perfect contrition is not like that at all. It's not something taken from private revelation. It's not an opinion from just a saint or a mystic. It's part of our faith. It's really based in the gospel. It's not taken from a vision or anything else. It's, it's basically just loving sorrow or sorrowing love. It's divine charity. So let's get into the act of perfect contrition and explain uh, what it is. Unfortunately, there isn't time to speak in depth, even though the show will be rather long. I'm afraid it's going to be closer to two hours, but I'm still not speaking in depth concerning so many points concerning the various controversies and historical facts regarding the doctrine of perfect contrition so i think it's more important i'm just going to deal with the basics and leave the extras for now
1: so father this is it's not a question then of just how you're not just going to give us a, a set of magic words like it's not the words it sounds like it's more really the
0: what is the actual love and the soul right yeah it's it's to explain what the act is and what it does and uh It goes far more than the words, and the words are actually unimportant. The movements of the will and heart are the essence of it. So let's get into what the act of perfect contrition actually is. And obviously, if this talk is about perfect contrition, it implies that there's such a thing as imperfect contrition. And in fact, there are two types of contrition, perfect and imperfect. So before we learn the difference between them, we have to know what contrition is. Contrition it, uh, as defined by the Council of Trent, is sorrow of heart and detestation for sin committed with the resolve to sin no more. Sorrow of heart and detestation for sin committed with the resolve to sin no more, unquote. So contrition is a sincere sorrow or sadness, or grieving for our offenses against God, uh, joined with a detestation or hatred for those sins, together with a firm resolve not to offend God again. So contrition, and this applies to perfect or imperfect contrition, either kind, must have certain qualities or characteristics in order to be true contrition. Contrition, in order to be true, must have four characteristics. It must be interior, it must be supernatural, it must be supreme, and it must be universal. So all theology textbooks talk about this. These terms may sound technical or complicated, but they're actually very simple. Interior simply means that it must be sincere and genuine. It can't be mere lip service or going through the motions. It must come from the heart. So how often do we say, pardon me, I'm, I'm sorry about that, After we bump into someone when we're really not sorry, when inside we're thinking, come on, get out of the way. So fake sorrow or fake apologies is very common. We're sorry because we got caught, uh, because apologizing may get us out of bigger trouble, because maybe it's just a polite thing to do, because it's expedient for one reason or another. So otherwise, we're really not too sorry for our actions. But to have true contrition, the sorrow must be sincere, So that's not a complicated uh, concept there. It's just common sense. It has to be sincere. Contrition also must be supernatural. Namely, that it has to be based on some supernatural motive or reason. It has to be rooted in the foundation of faith, on a doctrine of the faith. So sorrow is natural when it is inspired by purely natural reasons. And it's supernatural when it's inspired by supernatural reasons. So for a natural reason, for example, shame that we got caught and that other people know what we've done, disappointment in ourselves that now we don't have a perfect record, embarrassment into in falling into a sin of the flesh, for example, those are natural motives, really natural reasons. Sorrow out of you know, human respect or, or material gain or some other natural reason. So those motives are necessarily bad motives, but they're not, they're not supernatural. They're not sufficient motives for contrition. They're more like remorse than like contrition. Contrition has to be supernatural and motive. It's because we, for example, offended God Almighty, or we want to save our immortal soul. We want to go to heaven. We want to avoid hell. So some motive that is based on a revealed truth of the faith. Contrition must also be supreme, or as it is sometimes termed, sovereign, so this doesn't refer to the intensity or fervor of the contrition, in the emotions, but that we look upon mortal sin as the greatest evils, the 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 supreme evil, worse than mere physical pains or or, or monetary loss. And if we if we thought sin was bad, but not that bad, you know, it's it's a faux paw. It's then our sorrow from offending God would not be complete. It would be mostly natural. We have to appreciate sin for what it is. It's, a, it's an offense against the infinite God. A mortal sin is the supernatural death of the soul, the loss of sanctifying grace, the act which jeopardizes our eternal salvation. So that is the greatest of all evils. And if one really considered it as the greatest of all evils, it would imply that one would be willing to die rather than commit a mortal sin. That it would be better to suffer physically than commit so terrible an act. Again, a penitent may not explicitly think of all these things, but it has to be there implicitly. So for contrition to have this characteristic of being supreme, it doesn't mean that one loathes sin with the utmost emotion as possible. You can't always control emotion. Emotion is really not important here. It is sufficient to intellectually appreciate sin as the greatest of evils, even though it doesn't feel like it is. You can know something in your intellect and firmly believe it without it trickling down into your emotions. Someone, for example, may feel more disturbed at the death of his dog than uh, his house burning down, but intellectually he would realize that losing his house was, was far worse. Uh, even though he loved the dog. But he's more emotionally attached to the dog, so he's going to feel it in a different way. So even if you don't have the greatest emotional love of God, you can have supreme sorrow if you hate sin as the worst evil uh, that could have happened to you. And we'll come back to this emotional aspect later. I think it's uh, important. Finally, uh, contrition must be universal. Namely, you have to have sorrow... You have to be sorry for all your mortal sins. You can't be uh, sorry for nine out of ten of them, but still have affection for one of them, not willing to give it up. Uh, If you hold on to one mortal sin, for example, you cannot receive a valid absolution and confession. So when you deliberately conceal a mortal sin out of shame or human respect or attachment to it, the absolution is null and void. And if you purposely held back, You commit the added sin of sacrilege. So it's all or nothing when it comes to mortal sins. And this is the explicit teaching of the Catholic Church, and it's backed up by Scripture. St. James says, "...whosoever shall keep the whole law, but offend in one point, is become guilty of all." So the reason is that mortal sin is a turning away from God. One mortal sin empties the soul of sanctifying grace. Mortal sin is the, the abandonment of God, and, and it cannot coexist with sanctifying grace, which is the friendship with God, which is the finite participation of the very divine life and nature of God. And it results in the indwelling of the Holy Trinity in the soul. So either the soul is in mortal sin or is in the state of sanctifying grace, one or the other. You can't be in both. Uh, that's why you, you have to have contrition for all your mortal sins. And although we we should be contrite for all our venial sins, strictly speaking, it's not necessary in order to be in the state of grace. You should be sorry for all your venial sins, but venial sin is is not the same kind of sin as mortal sin. Mortal sin is a breaking with God, a turning away from Him, and venial sin is more, uh, is a cooling of of fervor, uh, a, a slight offense that doesn't break that bond of friendship. So together with this universal contrition for mortal sins, you have to have a firm purpose of amendment of life, a firm and efficacious resolve to not sin again. At least that must be our sincere desire at the moment of confession or the moment of making an act of contrition. You have to resolve, even though you may intellectually realize that the chances are I might fall again, but I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to right now. I don't want to sin ever again. I'm truly sorry. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm never going to commit those sins again. I don't want to commit those sins again. And uh, so that's why this must be a sincere resolve to change our life. God cannot be tricked. He reads the heart. We won't have true sorrow for sin if our lips with our lips, we say, I, you know, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But in our heart, we say, I don't, I don't really intend on giving up this sin. So that wouldn't be really true interior contrition. Now we come to a very important distinction for this talk. Uh, as I said before, there are two kinds of contrition, perfect and imperfect. These kinds of contrition are distinguished in two ways. The, the First of all, the effects are different And the motives are different between them. So let me start by summarizing the difference between them as briefly as possible. And then I'll go back a little deeper into each point. So in regards to the effects of these acts, there's a big difference. And the difference is this. Perfect contrition justifies the sinner. That is, the sinner can recover sanctifying grace outside the sacrament of penance. Whereas imperfect contrition cannot justify the sinner outside the sacrament of penance. So that's a huge difference. The other point that distinguishes these acts is in the motive that inspires them. The motive in an act of perfect contrition must be love of God. Whereas the motive in an act of imperfect contrition is any other supernatural motive like fear or hope. For example, fear of God, fear of hell, fear of losing God, hope of heaven, desire... Uh, to be in heaven, desire to see God, desire to be with our Lord and and our Lady in heaven. So it's more, it's not out of love, but some kind of hope or desire to, to gain something. So in a nutshell, these are the differences between perfect and imperfect contrition. Imperfect contrition is also called attrition, and perfect contrition is simply called contrition. So if you're reading a book and it says just contrition, Interpret that as perfect contrition most of the time. And if you see attrition, it's generally imperfect contrition. So I'll use both terms. I'll try to always say perfect contrition uh, when I mean perfect contrition uh, so there's not confusion. And just to use the—look at even the words attrition and contrition— Attrition comes from the Latin aterere, which means to rub against, whereas contrition comes from conterere, which means to grind or pound or pulverize. So it's kind of like, it's similar, but it goes further. It's not just rubbing, it's pulverizing. So that's why contrition is considered more thorough, more deep. And the Latin Vulgate, the edition of scripture, uses the term to mean compunction of heart or deep humiliation. The Catholic doctrine concerning imperfect contrition or attrition is important because it's sufficient for a valid reception of the sacrament of penance, of of absolution in the sacrament of penance. Not every sinner repents because they love God above all things. Uh, That's just a fact. A hardened sinner is usually more motivated or moved to repentance by motives of fear and hope. You know, they don't want to go to hell. They're, they fear going to hell or they hope they want to get to heaven. And these are, motives are good and praiseworthy. Fear is the beginning of wisdom, says scripture. And it, it's not the height of wisdom, but it is the beginning. Solitary fear of God's wrath or the loss of God is good. Uh, fear of going to hell, when it's not purely mercenary or servile, merely fearing pain itself, because that wouldn't be that would be almost just natural. But fear of going to hell, but for all the ramifications of being an enemy of God for all eternity, losing God, etc. These are good motives, because this this kind of fear and hope contain a little love for God. You don't want to lose God, uh, you don't want to be His enemy. So there's a little bit of love there. It may not be the love of friendship. It may not be the highest form of love to love God for himself because he is worthy of all love. But it is a kind of love for God because he is good for us uh, or good to us. He's, He's our supreme good. So it's not bad. Fear and hope is not bad motives. It's just not the best. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther, and other so-called reformers during the Protestant Reformation explicitly taught that fear of hell is not a worthy motive for attrition and makes a sinner an even greater sinner and a hypocrite. The Council of Trent rejected this error, and they said this by defining this, as to that imperfect contrition, which is called attrition, Because it is commonly conceived either from the consideration of the turpitude of sin or from the fear of hell and punishment, the Holy Synod declares that if, with the hope of pardon, it exclude the wish to sin, it not only does not make a man a hypocrite and a greater sinner, but is even a gift of God and an impulse of the Holy Ghost. So the Council of Trent is directly contradicting the teaching of Martin Luther there. And elsewhere, the Council of Trent teaches... Quote, if anyone saith that the contrition whereby one thinks over his years by pondering on the grievousness, the multitude, the vileness of his sins or the loss of eternal blessedness and the eternal damnation which he has incurred is not a true and profitable sorrow, let him be anathema. So there they are condemning that notion that fear is a bad motive. So, Father, I guess for in terms of uh, the sacrament of confession,
1: there are two kinds of contrition imperfect and perfect, either one is good enough. I guess with uh, the sacrament of uh, penance, you know, what God is looking for is just sorrow for your sins and an an intention to amend your life. But you're saying that perfect contrition is
0: another thing that stands on its own. Absolutely. But it's important to understand, too, that both attrition and perfect contrition, both imperfect contrition and perfect contrition, They're both sufficient for a valid reception of the sacrament of penance. And that is very important because not every sinner is going to have perfect contrition, And it is a doctrine of the church that uh, attrition is sufficient. That is is very important. The sacrament of penance was instituted by our Lord to to revive a sinner from spiritual death, to restore the soul to the state of sanctifying grace. And really, our Lord gave a tremendous power to his apostles and their successors and assistants, the bishops and priests, really the power to raise a soul from supernatural death, to mystically wash souls with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that Holy Communion is called the sacrament of the living, because you have to be in a state of grace to receive our Lord worthily. You already have to be living God's life, the life of sanctifying grace. But the sacrament of penance is called the sacrament of the dead. That it revives someone from the dead to life. Now, outside of the sacrament of penance, attrition alone will not recover this grace for you. You can be sorry, you can be sorry intensely for your sins out of tremendous fear of hell, but that motive is not good enough to affect your spiritual resurrection, or in theological terms, your justification. If you are in mortal sin and you are sorry for your sins out of fear of hell, and that's a good motive. You will remain in your sins until you go to confession. But that's not true of perfect contrition, and that is the amazing thing about it. So there are two questions to consider now. What are the effects of perfect contrition, and how hard is it to make an act of perfect contrition? And these are really two different questions. It's very easy to prove from theology, and really no one denies it, that perfect contrition obtains sanctifying grace immediately. Reconciling the sinner to God, but I wanted to provide evidence of this Catholic truth because many of us perhaps are ignorant of it uh, it's not spoken of as often as I think it should be. but before we get into that, we have to just again we have to I have to explain what makes perfect contrition perfect so perfect contrition is called perfect because it's motive is truly the best motive you can have, the best, the most perfect motive, namely the love of God, because he is all good and worthy of all our love. And that is charity, to love God above all things for his own sake. We can love God for himself, as he is in himself, for his own sake, because he's all good, all beautiful. He's infinite love itself, infinite life, infinite truth. And this is called the love of benevolence or love of friendship. We just love him because he's lovable. We just love him because he deserves to be loved. Or we can love God because he's good to us, that he created us and, and, and has given us uh, the chance of heaven, that he uh, continually assists us and surrounds us with his fatherly providence, and that he, the son of God, became man and died for our salvation. So we can love him for those reasons as well. So in other words, to love God for being so good to us, and that love is sometimes called amor concupiscentiae, love of concupiscence. Concupiscence, not in the sense of a lower animal desire, but the desire of the needs of the soul. It's not as perfect as loving God simply because He he's worthy of our love. God is worthy of our love even if he never gave us anything. Even if he never gave us the chance of heaven, he would be worthy of love because he's infinitely holy, infinitely good, infinitely beautiful. He's infinite love itself. He's lovable in itself. So he's worthy of our love. But he's also worthy of our love because of the things he's given us and done for us. The love that we are really looking for in, in the act of perfect contrition is that we are truly sorry for all of our sins because they offended God. Because he's all good and worthy of our love and not because what he's done for us. That is the love that we should strive for. Without losing that love of gratitude, we should love him because he's done for us. But primarily, we need to be grateful. He deserves our supreme love for those reasons. But perfect love of God is disinterested love, essentially. It can contain other motives, but primarily to be perfect loved, you want to love God for his own sake because he's worthy of love. And it's very easy for us to have this love because you look at our Lord and look what he's done for us. You move from that motive of look what he's done for us. Look at him on the cross. Look at the crucifix and look at those wounds and the blood and the sufferings that he offered for us and and uh, underwent for us. You can easily move from that motive of gratitude for what he's done for us and say, he is so good. He is so good to us. He's so good in himself. He's such a lovable being. And God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And so he is worthy of our love because he's just, he's lovable. He's so good. And even if he didn't give us that chance of heaven, he's still good. It is it, So this perfect love is just disinterested love, pure disinterested love, meaning that you don't care primarily about yourself but you care about god now it doesn't mean that you don't care at all about your salvation some heretics the quietists and semi quietists taught a doctrine called pure love which they totally excluded all motives of of hope and desire for god and so they went to the opposite extreme people like Molinos and Madame Guillaume and Archbishop Fenelon and I don't know if you've heard some of those names throughout the history, they went to the other extreme from pure fear, thinking about your own self, and then they went to the other extreme to the exclusion in, in this quote-unquote pure love of not even desiring God, not even hoping to obtain Him, and that's the opposite extreme. So to summarize briefly, we are to love God for His own sake because he's worthy of all our love. And you can have in there as a secondary motive. Of course, I want to get to heaven. Of course, I don't want to go to hell. But primarily because I'm sorry because God is lovable and he's all good and worthy of all my love. That's the primary motive, which I'm sorry for. God is our supreme good. We're supposed to desire him. There's nothing wrong with that. But our primary motive in, perf- uh, in perfect love and perfect contrition is because He's worthy of all our love. I mentioned quietism. I just want to put in here, explain it a little bit farther, because it definitely uh, was involved in some of the misunderstanding of perfect contrition. So I will quote from one of the most eminent theologians of the early 20th century, Cardinal Biot, and he said this, "...quietists were thus called from a quiet or indifference about, about our own salvation." They placed the height of Christian perfection in a certain passivism, which excludes all desire of happiness, all activity in doing good works, and even all resistance to temptations, and even to the most filthy suggestions of the devil. The semi-quietists abhorred absolutely the filthy consequences which Malinos and his quietists deduced from this principle, and yet to a certain extent they clung to the same principle. For they taught that there is a state of pure charity and consummate perfection, in which state there is excluded every act having as its motive our own interest, even spiritual. In it, there is no place either for fear of eternal punishments or for the desire of heavenly happiness or for the act of Christian hope founded on this desire. This is from his work on the virtues. So obviously God wants us to desire him. He's our perfection. He's, he is our happiness in heaven, the beatific vision. He doesn't want us to go to hell. We should fear that. We should want our sanctification. God's will is your sanctification. And the spiritual life is very subtle. The problem is with everything, there's always extremes. People go to extremes and where the truth is in the middle in medieval stat Virtus, in the middle, there's virtue. And the Catholic doctrine is always a balance between two extremes. So, Father, it it seems like
1: since the Protestant Reformation, there's been this whole confusion on this whole subject. Because if I just kind of paraphrase what the Protestants say, they say, well, anybody, as long as they just believe, they're saved. And that kind of makes it too easy. And then the Jansenists come back and say, well, no, it's not that. It's actually really hard because unless you're perfect like us, the Jansenists, then you don't have a chance, so don't even try. And and then the quietists come along and say, well, you know, you're all wrong because it doesn't really matter. You just have to be kind of this, in this state of almost a numb, indecisive, or undefined kind of just love and don't even do anything. So, I mean, you know, given all of that confusion since Martin Luther, it's no wonder this understanding of this whole subject is—
0: twisted at best. Mm-hmm. Now people go to extremes all the time. Again, our Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So I believe, obviously you have to resist temptations. You have to follow his commandments, but he's also the good shepherd. He's also, he's not a Pharisee like the Jansenists were. So a lot of times these errors are because it seems to me like they haven't read the Gospels. Our Lord is is a balance between he demands a lot from you, but he's also merciful. He's also a loving father. That's really the, 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 the church. That's why we, we have devotion to the sacred heart. That's why St. Alphonsus came along and he was very uh, influential in destroying the, 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 the Jansenists and they hated him for it because he emphasized the love of God. So now I think the exciting part of the act of perfect contrition is really the spiritual effects on the soul. We uh, have already said, What it is, it's namely that if a sinner is in a state of mortal sin, and it it makes a sincere act of perfect contrition, however feeble it may be in itself, or however intense it is, instantly recovers sanctifying grace and friendship with God. So this is the reason why I said that it's the most important prayer. It is the one prayer that can save your soul. If you were not in the state of grace, It is possible, it's conceivable to meditate and and even pray the rosary and and pray practically every prayer in a prayer book and still not be in the state of grace and go to hell if you were to die immediately after. Now, if you meant what you said in those prayers, I'm sure some of them contain good motives and they might be sufficient for perfect contrition. But as a formula goes, if you're catching what I'm saying, you could say the Hail Mary and not really be sorry for your sins from the love of God, right? You could say those things and and not actually have that motive. So this is a very specific act. It's very important. It's not so much based on the formula, although the formula very helps a lot, but the effects of these other beautiful and wonderful prayers is not the recovery of divine grace. They presuppose divine grace Or they obtain actual graces that lead to further divine grace. But unless an act of perfect contrition is made, however short and streamlined it may be, grace is not recovered outside the sacrament of penance. So this is a very precious and valuable prayer. It's a lifeline. Because if you die without sanctifying grace, you cannot be saved no matter what. You don't go to purgatory. You go to hell. If you die in the state of sanctifying grace, however, you are saved no matter what. It's that simple. You may have to go to purgatory to expiate your sins for a while, to suffer the temporal uh, or temporary punishments for sin, but you cannot go to hell with sanctifying grace. It's impossible. You'll be saved. So nothing is more important than that fact. Nothing is more important in this life than to die in the state of grace. Because if you don't, your life is an utter failure. If you do, you succeeded in the purpose of life. So sanctifying grace cannot be too highly valued. It is the pearl at great price. And let us remember what to say to sanctifying grace is. Sanctifying grace is a profound transformation of the soul, whereby the soul is infused with the participation of God's own divine life and nature. In the words of St. Peter the Apostle, we become partakers in the divine nature. And because of this participation, this is what makes us children of God by a supernatural adoption. We become like to God in a a mysterious way, but a profound and real way. We become temples of the most holy trinity in which the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost come and dwell. They dwell in the just soul as in a home. And as the Catechism says, it makes us heirs of God and destined for heaven. So without sanctifying grace, no beatific vision, which is the essence of heaven, that which makes heaven to be heaven, is to see God and possess God face-to-face as he is. Another fact is that we're only able to merit supernaturally, that is, obtain the increase of sanctifying grace or to obtain a, a greater degree of glory and happiness in heaven. In order to merit supernaturally, you have to be in the state of grace. So when you commit a mortal sin, you not only lose sanctifying grace, you will lose the ability to merit supernaturally. You're dead. You can't grow anymore. You can't grow spiritually in that state. And therefore, it's so important to recover the state of grace as soon as possible. One, you want to be in the state of grace because your salvation depends upon it. Two, you want to have that ability to recover past merits. And theologians say when you repent and recover grace you also recover it's like having a bank account that now you have no access to if you lose it and then when you gain the grace back then you have access to that treasury again so you want to be in the state of grace as soon as possible to to recover the past merits of all your good works and acts of love and prayer and the ability to keep on growing spiritually so you don't want to, and you should not put off recovering, sanctifying grace after a fall, not even an extra minute if we can help it. Now, it has to be stressed that these effects take place in the soul even before the sacrament of penance is received. As soon as the sinner makes an act of perfect contrition, he or she is immediately justified. So where there is true charity, where, where, which is the perfect love of God, that is where God will be. Some people have the mistaken view that the act of perfect contrition is only effective perhaps at the moment of death. So you make the act, and if you were to die, then you'd be in a state of grace, or if you were to be martyred, or only after absolution is received. That's not the fact. Immediately. That's the truth. Immediately. Now, it is certainly true that in order for an act of perfect contrition to be true and sincere, you have to have the intention of confessing those mortal sins in the sacrament of penance or at least you have to implicitly intend this you cannot be sincerely sorry for your sins because you love god above all things unless you are willing to do uh, and to follow god's commandment and follow his will it's god's will that we submit ourselves to the sacrament of penance to the power of the keys as it is called the power of binding and loosening that christ gave to his apostles uh, to the church And this intention of going to confession doesn't have to be explicitly there, but it has to be implicitly. You can't say to yourself, you know, I'm truly sorry for all my sins because I love God above all things, but I have no intention of going to confession. And that's not a true contrition. The question then arises, when do you have to go to confession? Some books say as soon as possible, but that's not the common opinion. St. Alphonsus' opinion was that you should go within a month. Again, that's not the common opinion either of uh, pre-Vatican II theologians. The general teaching was that you're obliged to go, go to confession only when the church demands it, and the church demands confession only once a year, at the very least, if you have committed a mortal sin. Of course, I'm not recommending leaving it for that year, of course, but it wouldn't be another mortal sin if you put it off. It would be dangerous, however. You don't want to get into that state of of just negligence, and I recommend that You go to confession as soon as it's reasonably possible. You don't have to go the next day, you don't have to rush out. If you're going to Mass the next Sunday, go to confession. Go when it is not of grave inconvenience, but go relatively soon so you don't forget. You do have to mention those sins in confession, but at least you have the peace of mind that you're in a state of grace, that at least if I were to die this very night, I would be saved. I wouldn't go to hell. Uh, so it's very important to make that act of perfect contrition immediately and not to go to communion. You're not allowed to go to communion until you go to confession. That's a, that's a strict law of the church. For, this, for Holy Communion, you have to go to uh, confession if you have mortal sin on your soul. For other sacraments, like uh, other sacraments of the living, like confirmation and holy matrimony, holy orders, uh, it is sufficient to, to make a, an act of perfect contrition. Then receive those. You want to receive those sacraments in the state of grace, and then go to confession at the next time. I wanted to provide some quotes not, uh, to prove not only that perfect contrition obtains for you sanctifying grace, but also immediately, even before the actual reception of the sacrament of penance. Now, I'm sure that our listeners are not denying this truth, but it's still, it's important just to lay it out. This is this is the the faith. First, let me quote from the uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. In the section entitled The Effects of Contrition, quote, For whereas most other pious practices, such as alms, fasting, prayer, and similar holy and commendable works, are sometimes rejected by God on account of these faults, of the faults of those who perform them, contrition can never be other than pleasing and acceptable to him. From Psalm 50, "'A contrite and humble heart, O God,' exclaims the prophet, "'thou wilt not despise.'" Nay, more, the same prophet declares elsewhere that as soon as we have conceived this contrition in our hearts, our sins are forgiven by God. I said, I will confess my injustice to the Lord, and thou hast forgiven the wickedness of my sin. Of this truth, we have a figure in the ten lepers who, when sent by our Lord to the priests, were cured of their leprosy before they had reached them, Which gives us to understand that such is the efficacy of true contrition of which we have spoken above, that through it we obtain from the Lord the immediate pardon of all sins. Unquote. So very powerful words from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Immediate pardon of all our sins. The Council of Trent says, It sometimes happens that contrition is perfect through charity and reconciles man with God before the sacrament of penance is actually received, In the theology textbook by Monsignor Pohl, it's edited by Father Proust. This is actually a 12-volume theology set. It's very good. And usually priests just refer to it as Paul Proust. It explains that the council originally intended to declare that perfect charity always, that is, by its very nature, effects immediate justification. But they chose the word sometimes. They gave up this intention out of respect for Pope Hadrian and Cardinal Cajetan, who had taken the opposite view, of course, as private theologians. Because it sometimes happens that even in a true council of the church, there's going to be some conflicts of opinions and, and views, and there's going to be pressure from different schools of thought and what is declared by general counsel, of course, is never going to be wrong, but sometimes things are left out for various reasons, sometimes political or whatever. On this topic, I wanted to quote from that book I mentioned before, Heaven Opened to Souls by Father Semple, dealing with this teaching of the Council of Trent. He quotes from the book History of the Council of Trent by Paolo Pacino, and this author says this, quote, There had also been prepared a canon condemning Whoever shall deny that contrition by which the penitent cooperating with divine grace through Jesus Christ repents of his sins for God with the purpose of confessing and satisfying remits sin. But Balthasar Aridia, Archbishop of Cagliari, remonstrated that that was the teaching of Cajetan and Adrian, and thence it ought not be condemned. Father Semple continues, it was the policy of the council to censure by its anathemas only errors of heretics and not all the mistakes of loyal sons of the church. However, this incident manifests that this teaching of Cajetan and Adrian was regarded by the council as peculiar and contrary to the common teaching of theologians even before the Council of Trent. So clearly the doctrine is that perfect contrition You recover sanctifying grace immediately before the sacrament of penance. Paul Proust says this. This is another very important proof. When Bias ventured to deny that except in case of necessity or martyrdom, perfect contrition, even if accompanied by a desire to receive the sacrament of penance, remits sin, his assertion was condemned by Pius V. Now, Bias or rather his full name, Michael Dubé. He was born in 1513, and he became eventually a professor of theology at the University of Louvain. And in 1551, he began to teach false doctrines that received opposition by other theologians, and eventually his theses or ideas were sent to the Pope. Pope Pius IV silenced him, but because Pius didn't obey, Pope St. Pius V issued a bull condemning explicitly 79 different teachings of bias. Now, when a proposition is condemned, it's against the faith. It is either outright heresy or or to believe it is is at least a mortal sin against the faith. It also means that the opposite of the condemned proposition is of the faith. Bias has several statements that are important for the subject of perfect contrition. The primary one is the one referred to by Pope Proust. And this is explicitly what it says. Remember, this is condemned. Through contrition, even when joined with perfect charity and with a desire to receive the sacrament, a crime is not remitted, as a sin, is not remitted without the actual reception of the sacrament, except in case of necessity or of martyrdom, unquote. So the statement is condemned. So in other words, when there is contrition inspired by perfect charity, Perfect contrition, along with a desire to receive the sacrament, sins are remitted without the actual reception of the sacrament and not merely in the case of necessity or martyrdom. That's what the church was saying, is that, no, it's not a special thing. It's not just for, you know, in case of martyrdom or a strict necessity. It's any time you make an act of perfect contrition. And let me give a few other statements of bias which were condemned. These are very important actually today for other reasons. Remember these, remember these are condemned. The opposite is the truth. Proposition 31: Perfect and sincere charity, which is from a pure heart and good conscience of faith, faith not feigned, and he's quoting First Timothy, can be in catechumens as well as in penitents without the remission of sins. And the thirty-second proposition that charity, which is the fullness of the law, is not always connected with remission of sins, unquote. So in other words, is taught that there can be true charity in the soul, which is the perfect love of God, and yet that soul can still be in mortal sin. This is condemned by the church. Where there is charity, there is not mortal sin, but the state of grace the state of sanctifying grace. Charity and sanctifying grace go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Where there is true charity, there is the state of grace. A catechumen, a non-believer, by the actual grace of God, can make a true act of perfect love for God and be justified even before the actual reception of the sacrament of baptism, just as in the same way a sinner can recover sanctifying grace by an act of perfect contrition, which is sorrow inspired and motivated by the perfect love of God, even before the actual reception of the sacrament of penance. So there's a perfect parallel. Each has to have at least an implicit desire for the sacrament. One cannot explicitly have the opposite intention. That would not be true charity. But where there is charity, there is God, because God is charity, as St. John the Apostle wrote. The primacy of charity is fundamental to Catholicism. And unfortunately, this basic truth is not understood by some traditional Catholics, and that's scary. One final quote, I think, uh, as we can find book after book, uh, which teaches the efficacy of perfect contrition. Let me quote from the Prince of Theologians, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the Summa. He teaches, quote, "'Sin is committed,' through the heart's inordinate love. Therefore, it is destroyed by sorrow caused by the heart's ordinate love and consequently blots out sin. So sorrow blots out sin. In the article entitled, Whether Slight Contrition Suffices to Blot Out Great Sins, he writes, Every sanctifying grace blots out every mortal sin because it is incompatible therewith. Now every contrition is quickened by sanctifying grace. Therefore, However slight it be, it blots out all sins. That reminds me of
1: the epistle of uh, St. James. It says uh, charity covers a multitude of sins. Right. Absolutely. Same thing. Absolutely.
0: I have a longer excerpt from a wonderful little book. I don't know if little is the word, but it's a great book called Pardon and Peace. It was written in 1946 by Father Alfred Wilson. It is republished. I believe Roman Catholic books republish it. I highly recommend it, especially to anyone who's a little scrupulous. It definitely dispels fear and anxiety in regards to the sacrament of penance. But I have a longer excerpt out of there that I found really helpful. Quote, Any sacrament which obscured the divine mercy and made God appear an exacting tyrant would have to be rejected. Our whole point is, however, that confession proves the exact opposite. Confession is not necessary to appease God's anger and win his pardon. An act of perfect contrition gains us instantaneous pardon and immediate restoration to grace. The truly contrite receive pardon as readily and as quickly as the good thief. We must not allow our faith in the readiness of God to forgive, to be dimmed or obscured by confession. Otherwise, our attitude towards God will be far more misguided than that of non-Catholics. They endeavor to honor the mercy of God, whereas the Jansenistically minded dishonor it. Confession expresses a human need, not a divine need, and is necessary to satisfy man, not to satisfy God. When our Savior instituted confession, he was thinking of us, not of himself. Whenever there is sincere contrition, he pardons in a flash and would pardon without more ado if such an arrangement were good for us. He saw, however, that it would not be good for us to be let off without an apology for serious sin. Parents often insist on an apology from an erring child, even when they have long since forgiven it in their hearts. They insist, not for their own sake, but for the sake of the child, whose ultimate good they unselfishly consider. In the same way, God insists on an apology from us, for our sake, not for his. It is evident that penitents often fail to realize this, because if they did realize it, they would not approach confession as they do. Many of them seem to think that they have no hope of recovering the divine friendship until they have been through all the formalities of confession, and woe betide them if they make any slips. What a complete misconception of the sacrament. In that case... God is more difficult to propitiate now than He was before the Incarnation. If they are truly contrite, they are already in the grace and friendship of God. Confession is designed not to placate the divine justice nor to win a tardy concession of mercy, but to enable us to gain the maximum benefits of divine mercy. If you are contrite, He has already forgiven you. And confession means that He wants to unfold you in His arms and bathe you in his precious blood." And this doctrine of charity and sanctifying grace in the soul goes back really to the Gospels in the New Testament. St. John the Apostle wrote, Dearly beloved, let us love one another, for charity is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. Perfect love, therefore, and justification are closely bound up as to exclude the state of sin. When you have true charity, you're born of God. St. Peter Chrysologus Christologist wrote this, You wish to be absolved? Then love. Charity covereth a multitude of sins. What is worse than the crime of denial? And yet Peter was able to expiate this solely by love. Unquote. And I remember I came across St. Augustine explaining, Charity covereth a multitude of sins. He said it covers even from God's sight. And God sees everything, and therefore covering means obliterating. It's gone. He doesn't even see it because his love is there. And to quote the theologian of theologians, the word incarnate, our Lord himself, he himself said, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that love me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him. So charity is the fulfillment of the law and not this new age hippie LUV type love but true supernatural love of God above all things, and our neighbor for the sake of God. So basically our Lord teaches this doctrine that where there is true love for him, there's sanctifying grace. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and will make our abode with him. So now we are at the million-dollar question, I think, is, is an act of perfect contrition hard to make, Or relatively easy. And this is where I encountered disagreement in the monastery as a young monk studying theology. From my studies, I knew it was the true Catholic doctrine that an act of perfect contrition was not especially difficult. However, there existed a prejudice, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, in in the mind of my abbot, uh, for example, that it was difficult. And that's not entirely his fault. There were older priests and professors in theology who taught this or inculcated this into the minds of their seminarians or students. As I will show, most of these writers or teachers were heavily affected by the errors or remnants of quietism or Jansenism, mostly Jansenism. I simply don't have the time to prove all this, but Jansenism especially, even after the heresies involved in Jansenism were condemned, the remnants of Jansenism survived for centuries, and it infected (laughs) many priests, unfortunately, and religious and laity, even in otherwise very pious and zealous Catholics. And they didn't realize they were looking at God and practicing the spiritual life almost like a Jansenist would. They weren't heretics, but they acted like Jansenists. And St. Tres of the Child Jesus did so much to squash Jansenism in the spiritual life. Jansenism made God out to be an over-exacting tyrant, unloving and unlovable, a taskmaster, that we can never be quote unquote worthy of the sacraments. And therefore, whole multitudes were kept from confession and communion for years. Jansenist priests would not offer mass for years sometimes for fear of not being worthy. A totally different view from the Catholic view, that the sacraments are for the weak, that Holy Communion, of course, you have to be in the state of grace, but you don't have to be a saint. It's food for the soul. It helps the weak. If you, St. Francis de Sales says, if you're perfect, it helps you remain perfect. And if you're imperfect, it helps you to become perfect. So it's food. And the Jansenists kept people from it. Jansenist priests rarely absolve penitence until many years of penance. And Holy Communion was maybe allowed once a year. First Holy Communion, I've read about stories that Holy Communion was sometimes kept until you're 20 or 25, 30 maybe. To the Jansenists, children were spawns of Satan, the worst sinners. So Jansenists were also extreme in exterior mortification, but lacking in interior humility. Jansenism is a whole show in itself, really, and that's an important topic, but it's really a disgusting and devastating heresy. Obviously, if it is nearly impossible to please God, one can probably never make an act of perfect contrition. Jansenists and those infected by them, this is why I said before, hated St. Alphonsus, for example. Because to them, he was too lax, which sounds funny to us now. And quietism, by emphasizing the pure love of God to the exclusion of all secondary motives, made that act of pure love more difficult because who has that pure love? There's always going to be a mixture of of fear or hope. So the vast majority of people, unless they're just lying to themselves, they're never going to have that perfect love because in the back of their minds, they're going to say, but I do desire heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And so for them, it wouldn't be perfect love. And so, yeah, it's too hard to do. So even from the opposite, it's it's amazing how you can come to the same error from two different sides. I can't spend too much time on this, but I'll, I'll simply quote one line from Cardinal Beale. Remember, Beale is the man. He is the great theologian and highly respected in the early 20th century. He has great authority. And he wrote this, We must remove that prejudice, which is a remnant of Jansenism, that the act of perfect love is a thing of great difficulty that this is most false, is most manifestly evident, unquote. Unfortunately, the idea that an act of perfect contrition is difficult has seeped its way into some catechisms. And I found the Tan version, well, Tan reprints it, an explanation of the Baltimore Catechism of Christian Doctrine by Reverend Thomas K- Kinkeed. This was, I believe, originally in 1880s, roughly. They reprinted it in 1978 from the 1921 edition. And this has also been known as Baltimore Catechism number four, because it has more explanations on each subject. But I was really discouraged to find that it said this, what is perfect contrition? Perfect contrition is that which fills us with sorrow and hatred for sin, because it offends God who is infinitely good in himself and worthy of all love. That's good so far. Then it says, it is a very hard thing to have perfect contrition but we should always try to have it so that our contrition may be as perfect as possible. This perfect contrition is the kind of contrition we must have if our sins are to be forgiven while we are in danger of death and cannot go to confession. Imperfect contrition with the precept absolution will blot out our sins. See, there's actually two errors right there. At least it gives the impression of errors. And one is, it's a very hard thing that perfect contrition. And the other thing is that Really, perfect contrition is left for when we're in danger of death. It gives that impression. No, you should do it immediately, as soon as possible. If you've ever had the misfortune of falling into mortal sin, you don't have to be in danger of death. You don't have to be in danger of martyrdom. It's whenever you're in the state of mortal sin, say it immediately and mean it. So this is from the 1978 edition of the Tan reprint they basically just photocopied the text from the older, original hardcover edition. But in 1988, they retypeset, and then they did some minor revisions, as they say, to conform with the new regulations on fasting and indulgences. So that's also another reason why sometimes TAN is, you have to take some things carefully because they, they have when some of the books added their own corrections or whatever, mm. in line generally with the new church. But it says this, and then I am glad to see this, in the 1988 edition, and inserted a word, it can be a very hard thing to have perfect contrition. But we should always try to have it so that our contrition may be as perfect as possible. So there's a little bit of downplay. It can be very difficult. Of course it is. For a hardened sinner who doesn't care about God at all, it probably is harder to make an act of perfect contrition. But for a Catholic who is trying, a Catholic who happened to fall through weakness, a Catholic or even one who has some love still in his heart or some desire for his faith, it's not gonna be extremely difficult. And things like this make it discouraging. I'm not even gonna try then, why try?
1: Yeah, now, Father, because there's an absence of a, a true teaching magisterium in our current situation in the Church, a lot of people turn to books like the Baltimore Catechism to sort of learn the faith. And I'm thinking here, okay, I would like to have a source like the Baltimore Catechism on hand, but now you're saying that it has something which cannot be trusted. So is a catechism not infallible? Or can a catechism contain erroneous opinions, or how how does that work? Because in the minds of a lot of our listeners, they'll think, well, the Baltimore Catechism is something engraved in stone that we can trust. And this seems to be, you know, you are seem to be saying that there's something here in the Baltimore Catechism that is not completely trustworthy.
0: Well, that is a very difficult question. I would say that no theologian would say that everything in a catechism is infallible, and that everything is de fide, of the faith. Even what I criticized right there is not against the faith, technically. It's an opinion. So it's giving an opinion I think is not the common opinion. I don't think the the proper opinion. is not against the faith, it's not heresy. I just think it's somewhat dangerous. So there's nothing against real faith or morals in that statement. And if anything, that's the opinion of Father King The actual Baltimore Catechism is really not the explanation, is the question and answers. And those are safe. It said here, perfect contrition is that which fills us with sorrow for sin because it offends God who is infinitely good in himself and worthy of all love. That's true. And that's why it's very carefully sifted through a catechism. A book like this is commentary on it too. So you're going to get Father King Keed's interpretation it's not even Mm -hmm. of the same level of authority of just the baltimore catechism okay it's the commentary so
1: we're not suggesting here that the baltimore catechism has erroneous opinion but just the commentary on the catechism by father kinke right
0: right okay yeah i guess that would be the best way to put it okay Uh, that this is really an opinion and uh, unfortunately some people are more infected by it that's all and i I don't think it's against the faith i wouldn't call kinke a heretic no, he's not saying anything heretical. I just think he's not saying the common teaching of theologians, and definitely the more weighty, common consent of theologians after Council of Trent for sure.
1: Yeah, it's a pity because he's offering his opinion in this book in his commentary, but it's a pity that his opinion is not the same as the more common
0: opinion. Well, let me give you an example. I'm very glad that the popular adult catechism book, My Catholic Faith, by Bishop Merrill, 1954 edition especially, it gave the right doctrine. It said, the question is, is it easy to make an act of perfect contrition sincerely? And it said, it is easy if we sincerely wish to love God. Hmm. Totally different, right? Yeah, totally different. Right, so, yeah. I mean, you're talking about opinions. It's not against the faith either way, but I accept Bishop Merrill's opinion rather than King Keed's hmm. okay. So, I, I'm just saying, yeah, it's... The, the catechism itself is safe. Some of the commentary, perhaps, it, you know, it's just, I'm not trying to put any doubt into Catholic minds, but the more you read, the more you understand that there is legitimate room for opinions by some Catholic authors. There's the faith, then there's some theological opinions and or different approaches. There's different schools of thought. There's different schools of spirituality. One's going to emphasize this aspect. One's going to emphasize this, neither against the faith. There's different opinions uh, on different theological questions. That's the way it is. And the more you read, the more you discover that. And you don't let it destroy you because the faith is still the faith. The dogmas are still the dogmas. Mm. Uh, I quoted enough authority to show that is the faith. Sort of like the question, which religious order is the best? Of course, the Benedictines went
1: to yeah, uh, Na- Yeah, naturally. It, right? yeah, naturally.
0: <laughs> so let me just say this. If you read in any book that an act of perfect contrition is very rare or very difficult, it's not heresy, per se, but it is wrong, I think. It's not the common teaching of theologians for the past few centuries, for sure, and not really the mind of the church. Another reason why there is misunderstanding on the difficulty or ease of making an act of perfect contrition is, I think, from the very word perfect. Immediately, people think, perfect? I'm not perfect. I can't do anything perfect. Or perfect give this connotation of being difficult, even of itself, even naturally. But that's a shame. The word perfect can be misleading. These adjectives are describing a kind of contrition, not the degree of intensity of the act itself. It's all about the motive for the contrition. And that really changes what the contrition is and its effects are. There's a world of difference between a perfect act of contrition and and an act of perfect contrition. Where you put that word perfect makes a lot of difference. Mm -hmm. A perfect act of contrition is really describing the intensity or fervor of the act itself. It's the most intense that you could have, uh, whereas the other is describing a kind of contrition, which is called perfect. It's almost like if we change the words from blue contrition and red contrition. I have a perfectly blue contrition. So sometimes that may help someone. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of contrition. A perfect act of contrition is in describing the intensity or fervor. And not everyone can or, or, or does make perfect acts of contrition. Maybe a saint does, they, they more intensely, but everyone can make an act of perfect contrition. There's degrees, there's degrees to this act. And, and does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, St. Mary Magdalene, her act of perfect contrition was so intense that St. Thomas Aquinas believed that she not only was forgiven all her sins, but all the debt of temporal punishment, all the remnants of sin were taken away. So and that was so perfect. In intensity of fervor. But the good thief even had that. And our Lord said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So obviously he had some charity there, some some perfect contrition. So there are degrees to perfection. Perfect does not depend on the intensity of the sorrow or the length of the time, so it doesn't become more perfect just because it lasted that day, a day, or two days, or three weeks. It can be done in a second, an act of perfect nutrition. Sorrow is perfect when it is motivated by charity, by love of God, period. It could be even a split second. Father Semple, from that book, Heaven Opened to Souls, he said, quote, No particular degree of intensity in sorrow is necessary. St. Thomas Aquinas was followed by all the scholastics in this matter. Howsoever slight the sorrow is, provided that it is contrition, it blots out all sin. Many writers, Pope Adrian VI and Soto, Union, Estius, Lupus, required intense sorrow or charity. And this is Pope Adrian. It's quoting a Pope as a private theologian. May, may have been even before he was Pope. The command of Christ that we should love God with our whole heart refers to the love of appreciation. Sorrow, to be perfect need not last a definite length of time the contrary appeared to be taught by some writers and even bishops it is said and even bishops it is said were found who refused absolution to dying sinners on the ground that their sorrow had not been protracted unless these two instances have been misunderstood forgiveness through the sacrament was made difficult unquote and that's terrible that's bad theology leads to bad practice and bad spirituality, if you think that your contrition has to be protracted a long time, of course you're not going to absolve dying sinners. You don't have enough time. Uh, And that's a shame. That's that's a travesty of the sacrament. On the topic of the emotional side of contrition, I found this excerpt from Abbot Eugene Boylan in his book, Difficulties in Mental Prayer. This is 1944. Quote, a different type of error is that of trying to feel our acts. The essential act of love of God is made in the will, and therefore, unless it overflows into the emotions, it in itself cannot be felt. The well-known doctrine of true contrition should be kept in mind in this connection. True sorrow for sin is a turning away of the will from sin and manifests itself in a determination of the will to avoid it in the future. It is quite compatible with a strong animal liking for the sinful pleasure felt in the lower appetite, and consequent pain in giving it up. So too, in prayer, if our acts proceed from the will, it does not matter whether they affect our feelings or not. As long as we will to love God, by that very fact, with the help of grace, we do love him. Unquote. And then there are the countless examples through the Gospels of of sinners approaching our Lord with true repentance and our Lord declaring them justified. Their contrition is sometimes barely manifest, but of course our Lord sees it in their heart, be it ever so small, and he blesses it. St. Mary Magdalene, many sins are forgiven her because she has loved much, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and began to pray thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like the rest of men, robbers, dishonest, adulterers, or even like this publican. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I possess. But the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his breast saying, O God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is an act of contrition. I tell you, this man went back to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Palsied man, our Lord said to him, Be of good heart, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And then there's the good thief. Our Lord cannot and will not resist a truly contrite heart. Where there is contrition, there is forgiveness. And where there is charity, there is his sanctifying grace and divine indwelling. I think one of the best arguments for the relative ease or ability for someone to make an active perfect contrition is the argument about the Old Testament. It's simplest if I just quote to prove this point. The theology textbook Paul Proust says this, quote, Number one, proof from Scripture. The ancient covenant knew neither baptism nor penance, and under it adult sinners had no other means of obtaining forgiveness than perfect contrition. It is impossible to assume that the New Testament is inferior in this respect to the old. Consequently, perfect contrition of itself, that is, without the sacrament, though not without a desire for the same, must have the power to forgive sins in the new dispensation also, unquote. So here we're speaking of a relative ease and it being relatively common. We're not saying that everyone in the world has perfect contrition. We're not saying everyone's saved, but that it's possible with ordinary grace to make this act, that it's not an extraordinary mystical phenomenon seen once a century, uh, it's there, Of course, for the non-believer, for someone prejudiced by a false religion or for a hardened sinner, it may certainly be more difficult to make an act of perfect contrition than an act of imperfect contrition, motivated by the fear of hell. That may be a little harder, but it doesn't mean that the act of perfect contrition is hard of its own nature. It often happens in confession that merely by the priest speaking to the penitent of different motivating ideas, that the penitent, penitent's contrition can rise from an imperfect kind to, to perfect. You know, they start realizing, oh, I hurt God. I love God. He's worthy of my love. And they start crying. And their motive, again, has changed and transformed. And it become perfect in within in a few seconds. So if perfect contrition was the only way to be saved in the Old Testament, it cannot be harder to save your soul in the New Testament, the law of love. Where sin abounded, grace did more abound. It is easier in the New Testament, indeed. But that's also because we now have those wonderful sacraments of baptism and penance where attrition suffices. But perfect contrition is still efficacious. This is from that pamphlet on the Golden Key of Heaven published in 1906. To give you confidence in your ability to make acts of perfect contrition, you must remember that for many thousands of years before the time of our Lord in the old law, perfect contrition was the only means whereby men could obtain forgiveness of sin and enter heaven. And as for the millions of heathens and heretics at the present time, many of these will be saved only and entirely by perfect contrition. Therefore, the good God could not have annexed the forgiveness of sin to a very difficult condition, but to one which is possible for all, for he wills not the death of the sinner. But a perfect contrition is possible for those who, without any fault of theirs, live and die far from the font of grace, the Catholic Church. Can it be difficult, Catholic soul, for you, who have so many more graces and are better instructed? I maintain that you often have perfect contrition without knowing it or thinking it. For example, while devoutly hearing Mass, while making the Stations of the Cross, while piously contemplating a crucifix or a picture of the Sacred Heart, while listening to a sermon, and so forth. Furthermore, you can often express the most ardent love and the most heartfelt sorrow in a few words, provided you have the proper intention and motive, namely, the love of God. For example, by the aspirational prayers, My God and my all, Oh, my Jesus, mercy. O oh my God, I love thee above all things. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, I live for thee. Finally, perfect contrition cannot be beyond our reach because God has given it the power to produce such excellent effects. Therefore, he desires us to excite ourselves to it, and he will help us to do so, Unquote. I think that's an excellent quote. I've kept that many years in my files. One of the main reasons why this perfect love cannot be difficult or rare is that Jesus Christ commands us to perfect love. He commands that we love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. And this is to love God above all things, not in intensity. It's not something very difficult. If he said this is the greatest and first commandment and no one can do it, he would command impossible things. The greatest and first commandment is to love God above all things for his own sake. It's recorded in Deuteronomy, and and this is to quote Father Semple. The greatest and first commandment is to love God above all things for his own sake. It is recorded in Deuteronomy and in the Gospels of St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke, and in the Epistles. It is published by Moses and by our Divine Lord and by the Apostles. God imposed this yoke, burden, command on the conscience of each member of the human race, For all the centuries, from its first creation to the last judgment, he does not command impossibilities, but by commanding admonishes us to do what we are able and to ask for what we are not able, and he aids us so that we may be able. This is a fundamental maxim of Christianity. It is thus worded by St. Augustine, the Doctor of Grace, and is adopted as its own by the Church in the decree of the Council of Trent and in many other infallible pronouncements. Unquote. So everyone should have memorized that act of contrition, which is given by the Baltimore Catechism, and it's very common. I will read it, and then we'll analyze it a little bit to show you. Oh, my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but most of all because they offended thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, to do penance, and to amend my life. Amen. So if we analyze this formula, we see that it contains all the ingredients necessary for perfect contrition. So that if we recited this formula and actually mean what we say, then we would have perfect contrition. It's that simple. If we meant what we said. First, let me analyze this. Oh my God. Here we're addressing God, in which we have to have faith to believe he exists. That it isn't sorrow addressed to the community, but to God. Sin is primarily an offense against God. I am heartily sorry, sincerely sorry from the heart. This is interior sorrow. Sometimes people do not say heartily in the confessional. Sometimes they say hardly sorry. So try to avoid that. Since if you meant what you said, then it would certainly go against contrition. I detest all my sins. This is universal sorrow for all mortal sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. And so these are imperfect motives. They're sufficient for attrition and a valid absolution. But the formula goes on. But most of all, because they have offended thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. That is the key sentence of the whole act. This is the heart of perfect contrition, or rather the motive that we're looking for, love of God for his own sake, because he is worthy of love, because he is infinitely good, and not so much what happens to us. And then, of course, the formula includes the firm purpose of amendment, the good and firm resolution to avoid sins in the future, to confess them, to make satisfaction for them by penance, and to amend our life. Everything is in that formula. However, it is a formula. It's a guide and all these motives actually can be implied by a simple movement of the heart towards God in sorrowing love or loving sorrow. God reads the heart. So at first it is good to recite this formula and we really have to in confession, we should, uh, or a or similar formula, but we should let these motives sink into our minds and hearts so that they should become part of us, an habitual frame of mind, so that we are in the habit of making this act of contrition every day And at a moment's notice, especially in the danger of death, at that moment of death or that dangerous time, we will think about what we are accustomed to think about. And this is uh, humorously, there are many stories of people driving along in their car and they had a patch of ice and they spin around and they're going into a ditch and the person in the car starts praying, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which we are about to receive. So they're saying grace before meals, right, before they're about to die. So if you're in the habit of saying the act of perfect contrition, it's going to come to your mind more easily. And if you get used to saying it in a very simple way, sometimes just a movement of your heart, having all those motives, most likely you're going to do that in a dangerous situation. And that may mean for you, if you're not in the state of grace, that may mean your salvation. That simple act, a simple habit. So it'd be good to say it. At least once a day? Yeah, we should say it every day, I think. Uh, or even simplified. I'm sorry I, I, that I find you, Lord. I love you above all things. Like even simplified. So it, it can become so second nature and so simplified that everything can be really contained in a few words. And so this act of perfect contrition may be made in various forms. We can express it in our own words. Sometimes, as I said, oh my God, I love thee above all things. My God and my all oh, Jesus, I love you, have mercy upon me. It could be really contained in that. And if you meant all those things, it could be really an act of of perfect contrition. So we're going to close soon. There's a side topic that I really wanted to add to this talk, even though it will extend the talk a little longer, so bear with me. It's this, that when we make an act of perfect love for God or an act of perfect contrition, we also make satisfaction for past sins. We expiate past sins. In other words, we decrease our purgatory time partially or even completely. And this is another reason why we have to practice perfect contrition and make an act of perfect contrition as often as possible. It really should be our go-to prayer. Over the years, I've collected many quotes and excerpts on this subject that many people may not have had the privilege of reading. So I'm going to present them here because they're so valuable and so very encouraging. I think many people get the idea that the only way to make satisfaction for our debt of sin is by extraordinary sufferings or penances, you know, hair shirts, fasting, scourgings, pilgrimages on your knees. So without these, many people think it would be futile to hope to bypass purgatory. But this is not so. It's not the intensity of sufferings as such that purify us and make us pleasing in God's sight. It's the love which does this, love for him burning in our hearts. Now, sometimes it those external acts sometimes manifest our love for God. Sometimes they feed the love of God. Sometimes they prove how deep our love is, but they're not the love itself. St. Thomas in the Summa has an article entitled, Whether Contrition Can Take Away the Debt of Punishment Entirely. St. Thomas writes, The affections of the heart are more acceptable to God than external acts. Now man is absolved from both punishment and guilt by means of external actions, and therefore he is also by means of the heart's affections, such as contrition is. Further, we have an example of this in the thief to whom it was said, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise on account of his one act of repentance, that he made reparation for all his crimes. That's amazing. Later on, St. Thomas writes, although the sorrow of contrition is finite in its intensity, even as the punishment due to mortal sin is finite, yet it derives infinite power from charity, whereby it is quickened. So it avails for the remission of both guilt and punishment, unquote. And this is where St. Thomas was of the opinion that St. Mary Magdalene's repentance was so great that when she wept at our Lord's feet, she not only obtained the forgiveness of all her sins, but all the temporal punishment due to them, all the remnants of the sin. He has this in part three, question 86, quote, he sometimes turns the heart of man with such power, speaking of God, that it receives at once perfect spiritual health, not only the guilt being pardoned, but all remnants of sin being removed, as was the case with Magdalene, unquote. Love is a consuming fire. Real love for God penetrates deep into the soul and it burns away egoism and selfishness and that's the real obstacle to intimate union with god and that is why saint john of the cross wrote this quote it is of the highest importance that the soul should be well exercised in love so that being rapidly consumed she will tarry but a short time here below and quickly attain to the vision of god face to face unquote so a soul perfectly in love with god will have no need of purgatory. Saint Therese of the Child Jesus says, "How could he cleanse in the flames of purgatory souls consumed with the fire of divine love?" The answer is he could not. There would be nothing left for him, the fire of purgatory, to do. The great medieval Dominican preacher and theologian, the Father Towler, speaking about the power of love, wrote this quote: "If such a man had been guilty of the sins of all other men put together." God would forgive him everything the instant he had attained this state of perfect love. Unquote. And Saint Therese of the Child Jesus says, The chief plenary indulgence which is within the reach of everybody and can be gained without the ordinary conditions is that of charity, which covers the multitude of sins. St. John of the Cross wrote, At the evening of life, they shall examine thee in love. Love and not suffering as such is what our Lord wants. That is what He looks for in us, in our soul. He looks for love. Uh, And therefore, that is what we have to strive most of all to acquire in this life, to increase our love for Him. To such an extent that we will be wholly detached from all that is opposed to intimate union with Him. And this is done by reforming all our actions out of love for God alone, as well as making frequent acts of love for Him. So, my God, I love you above all things. I want to love you. Infuse in me your love. This is all perfect love. I want to love you above all things. Contrition, perfect contrition, is sorrow for your sins out of the motive of love for God. So you're doing two things. You're repenting for past sins, and you're making an act of love because uh, He is worthy of all your love. So that's why we have to repeat that every day. It's going to have that twofold effect. And remember that the sufferings in purgatory— they're completely useless as far as merit is concerned. You're completely passive. You're not meriting there. It doesn't increase our love for God. It, only on earth can we merit an increase of love. St. Therese of the Child, Jesus says, I cannot fear purgatory. I know I do not merit to enter even into that place of expiation with the holy souls. But I also know that the fire of love is more sanctifying than the fire of purgatory. I know that Jesus could not wish useless suffering for us, and he would not inspire me with the desires I feel were he not willing to fulfill them, Unquote. God wants us to serve him generously on earth here so that when we leave this earth, we go straight to heaven. That purgatory is the safety net. So it's not impossible. It may be hard, a little harder, but it's not impossible to go straight to heaven. So whatever we can do in this life, whatever it takes to satisfy our debt and purify our soul in this life is a very small in comparison with the sufferings of purgatory. If a soul were sufficiently purified in this life of all that is opposed to God, that is perfected in the love of God, then it wouldn't have any need of purgatory. St. John of the Cross teaches this. He said, for the fire would have no power over them, even though they came into contact with it, If they had no imperfections for which to suffer, these are the material upon which the fire of purgatory seizes. When that material is consumed there is not else that can burn. So that's the purpose of our holy Catholic faith, the holy Catholic religion. Catholicism is not meant to be a cozy relaxation by a warm fireside, but to plunge into the spiritual furnace of a deep interior life. And that's done by love, the fire of divine love. That's... The most important act, I believe, hardly it's ever talked about, is the way of divine charity, the way of divine love. That's what will sanctify souls. That's what made the saints. Not their exterior mortifications. That's just their symptoms of love. Those are the the manifestations of love. But the love itself is what purified them. Is what made them holy. There's a certain book called Comfort for the Faint Hearted. It was written by Abbot Bloisius, or Louis of Blois. He compiled this book in 1555, and Abbot Bloisius is one of my favorite spiritual writers. He's really the St. Therese of the Child Jesus of the 1600s. He has a great spirit about him. I just love his approach. Very gentle, like St. Francis of Sales, perhaps. And Abbot Bloisius is particularly fond of quoting two Dominican writers, Blessed Henry Suso and Dr. John Taller, Father John Taller. John Taller was often called the Illuminated Dr. And both of these authors belong to the celebrated German school of spiritual writers of the 14th century, together with Roosbrecht. And they've always been numbered as masters of the spiritual life. Both Sway considered his writings to be of great value, and St. John of the Cross carefully studied them. So Taller, is he's not well known today, but he was considered a great spiritual writer in the old days. He gives this powerful quote, A man can, in a moment... By true love of God, with great detestation of sin and sincere contempt of self, purely for the glory of God, so strongly and intensely turn himself from all sin as to obtain at once pardon for all the guilt as well as all the punishment of sin, so that if he should die in that state, he would fly straight to God without anything to prevent perfect union, even if he alone had committed the sins of the whole world. The reason why it often happens that only part of the punishment due to God's justice is forgiven when we are absolved from the guilt of sin is simply this. It is because our contrition and our turning of the will from all sin and our corresponding turning to God and our love to him by no means really comes from our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, and all our strength according to God's command. For true love and true confidence in God, with perfect hatred and detestation of sin and contempt of self, is the most precious possible treasure by which we can gain and secure easily whatever we desire, yea, far more than we desire, And in the book, Comfort for the Fainthearted, which was translated by Father Wilberforce, O.P., he wrote this as a footnote. Although it is true that this contrition is rare, on account of our lukewarmness and love, it is useful to know that it is possible, by God's grace, for everyone, and we should strive to have as great a degree of it as we can. For the more we love, the more will be forgiven, according to the words of Christ about St. Mary Magdalene. Many sins are forgiven her because she has loved much.
1: Okay. Well, that's great, Father. It's uh, kind of overwhelming that this has been such an important subject, and I'm very grateful that you've treated it so thoroughly and given us so much to to think about and then pray about. And it is a comfort to know that this act of perfect contrition can help us save our souls in this time when so many of us are without the sacraments and without a priest. So uh, again, uh, thank you, Father. And this is John Thompson talking with Father Bernard Utley, traditional Benedictine priest. And we've been discussing the subject of perfect contrition.